Friday, President Trump is headed to Miami, Florida to announce his decision on a new U.S.-Cuba policy. On the campaign trail, Trump called the Obama administration's moves to restore relations with Cuba a, quote, bad deal, and he even tweeted a threat to terminate it. But how many of the steps Obama took to thaw our relationship with Cuba can President Trump actually undo? Which policies, if any, are irreversible? And perhaps most importantly, what might be the consequences of rolling back parts of U.S.-Cuba normalization? I'm Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Now, you guys are in for a real treat because this week we've got senior national security correspondent, the Pulitzer Prize winning Karen DeYoung here. And Karen was formerly the Post's Latin America bureau chief. She's extensively reported on Cuba. Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So Trump is set to give a speech about his sort of to-be-determined U.S.-Cuba policy in Miami on Friday. Heading into this speech, though, explain where the U.S.-Cuba relationship stands now. Well, after lengthy secret negotiations, the Obama administration announced in December of 2014 that they were on a path to normalize relations with Cuba. And what does that mean? That meant that they were going to reestablish diplomatic relations, which had been broken more than 50 years ago at that point between the United States and Cuba. And the reasoning for this, according to the Obama administration, was that 50 years of trying to crack down in Cuba had not achieved the U.S. goal of changing the government there. And so we were going to try something different. We were going to try opening up Cuba to contact with Americans, to try to boost the private sector there so people could own things, have their own businesses in a way that they hadn't been allowed to, and that this would then gradually promote the kind of change in Cuba that the harsh crackdown of the past half century had not. Yeah, well, what was that change that that we're hoping to see? Well, I think they hoped not for an overnight change, but that the Fidel Castro, who had stepped down from power a decade earlier, turning it over to his brother, was old, was going to die. His brother's in his 80s. He was going to die. And that looking at this at this generational change from the kind of revolutionary generation in Cuba and at the same time bringing in the Internet, giving young people more opportunities that they had, that gradually the Cuban people would demand changes in Cuba. And uh, that was the goal, and that's what they said they were, they were working toward. So now fast forward to the Trump administration. Trump wants to roll back some of these things, perhaps all of them. It's, it's still a little bit unclear. Exactly what does Trump want to change? Well, Trump said during the campaign various things. Uh, He said that he was not opposed to normalization of relations with Cuba, but that he thought that Obama had struck a bad deal. He didn't really describe what he meant by that. And of course, there are a number of particularly but not solely Republicans in Congress, primarily Cuban-Americans, who said this should never have happened. This was a giveaway to the Castro regime, and all it was doing was uh, keeping them in power. So those forces on the one side, the people who didn't want change, and the American business community, the American public, 
which had been traveling to Cuba, and including a lot of Republicans, who, from, particularly from farm states, who saw Cuba as a market, uh, argued on the other side. They said, no, leave these, leave these openings in place. In fact, we want more openings to Cuba. So you had that dynamic of the two sides arguing as the Trump administration began a process of reviewing what was there and what, if anything, they wanted to change about it. Yeah, so that is actually a nice segue to my next question, which is, how is Trump being advised right now by by lawmakers? Who, who thinks this is a good idea? I think that probably the majority think it's a good idea. Fifty-four senators uh, have signed a bill that was introduced last month calling for f- totally free American travel to Cuba. You've had a similar resolution in, in the House of, of Representatives introduced. Um, you have Marco Rubio, who is the senator from Florida, Cuban-American, Mario Diaz-Balart, representative from Miami, Cuban-American, and uh, several others who have said, no, we don't want this to go any farther. In fact, we want it rolled back. So you basically had the governing people in the Trump administration saying, we really should not roll this back. We should make it broader. And the political people within the White House saying, no, this is not what you promised. You promised you were going to change this. Interesting. And what about business leaders? What's their take? Uh, I think business leaders have, with very, very few exceptions, have come out in favor of broadening the, the current opening. You've had the National Association of Manufacturers, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Rice Board, the Wheat Board, farmers organizations in general say, no, we can make money in Cuba, and if you close this down, it's going to cost us money, and it's going to cost us jobs. So if all of these business leaders and some lawmakers don't want to see a rollback of this, then then why would the Trump administration do that? Well, one possible reason is looking forward to the 2020 election. I think that Senator Rubio and Congressman Diaz-Balart have argued that not rolling it back could cost votes in Florida. Other people disagree with that and say that the electorate in Florida has changed a great deal since the 60s and 70s, where you had the very large Cuban community totally opposed to any outreach with Cuba under the Castro government. So then, based on your reporting, what do you expect to happen on Friday in terms of optics, in terms of what he's going to say? Like, What do you expect Friday to look like? Well, the the White House has been very closed mouth about what the president's going to do. And I think that um, you will see the the large basic pillars of the policy change remain in place. Uh, we will not reverse the opening of diplomatic relations and establishment of embassies, although we will see that embassy not have an ambassador. Trump will not nominate an ambassador. There's not an ambassador now because Congress would not approve the person that President Obama nominated. Uh, I think that um, there will not be a closure of commercial ties. I think that uh, uh, what exists will be allowed to continue except for those uh, commercial agreements that involve the Cuban military. I think you might see a tightening of rules on Americans traveling to Cuba, not changing the rules, but enforcing them much more tightly. Right now, if you or I want to go to Cuba, we simply buy a ticket on a commercial airliner. We check a box that said, yes, we're going for one of the approved purposes, and we go, and we come back, and nobody asks us any questions. Um, theoretically, the customs and Border Patrol at the, at the borders 
could ask you for proof that you went for a for an approved purpose. Let's see the proof that you went to do religious studies, that you went to uh, look at um, nature in Cuba. To better understand America's current relationship with Cuba, we need to first understand the long and complicated history behind it. Julia Swig is a senior research fellow at the University of Texas, and she's also the author of Cuba, What Everyone Needs to Know, and Inside the Cuban Revolution. Now, in the early 1950s, a revolution began in Cuba against dictator Fulgencio Batista. That revolution ended in 1959 when Fidel Castro seized control of the country. Julia picks up the story. Well, early in 1959, the Eisenhower administration had already developed a very, very cautious and skeptical attitude about those bearded rebels that took over in Cuba. Cuba had been really an economic stronghold for the United States and the Caribbean and Latin America. American companies owned vast amounts of companies and land there, and the revolution was about extirpating that American political and economic presence from Cuba. From there, let's sort of walk through some of the key moments of the early 60s, starting with the the Bay of Pigs invasion. What, What happened in 1961? Before Eisenhower stepped down, he briefed JFK on these plans to deploy an invasion force into Cuba in order to overthrow Fidel Castro. And the invasion force was organized by the CIA and made up of a number, several thousand Cuban exiles, and they staged an invasion at the Bay of Pigs, which is a very inhospitable marsh outside of Havana, a couple of hours south, and were rapidly defeated, taken over by Fidel Castro. It was a huge political and military disaster for JFK, and that's the moment when he famously made public this statement about... There's an old saying that uh, victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. And, uh, and I then wouldn't be surprised an, if, uh, another issue for JFK that came up was in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Can you just sort of summarize what happened there? Sure. Well, by 1962, Cuba had decided that it was in its own national security interest to, especially after the Bay of Pigs, that it had a significant military adversary a few miles away, and so deepened its relationship with the Soviet Union. And the Soviets used Cuba, with Fidel's permission, to stage missiles that had nuclear heads pointed toward the United States. And the United States picked up on this with its aerial intelligence, and that launched the days in October of 1962, known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which the Soviets and the Americans, with the Cubans sort of playing a role but not at the table, facing off over potential large-scale first-ever nuclear conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. From my understanding, there had been, as these events were unfolding, there had sort of been incremental embargoes, different things, imports at one time, exports at another. But kind of the the culmination of these things came to an official embargo. What were the terms of that at that point? The embargo evolves over decades against Cuba, but it solidifies over in the early years. And it's an economic embargo that 
the president, presidents using their executive authority used to cut Cuba off economically, um, and then sort of it has diplomatic and political and other features to it. But basically, the objective behind it is to strangle the island, deprive it of access to markets, and in that way kind of accomplish what it couldn't do militarily by other means, which was to drive a wedge between the Cuban population and the Castro's leadership. Americans, by and large, until quite recently, have largely been banned from visiting Cuba. It's the only country in the world, actually, that Americans have had to, in the past, either not been allowed by their own government to travel or have had to ask permission of their own government to do so. So there's a travel ban, there's a communications ban, gradually over the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and then especially in the 1990s, actually, after the Soviet bloc falls, those uh, sanctions become stronger and stronger and stronger, and by the middle of the 1990s, actually get some legislative heft to them, not just the executive orders by presidents imposing or sometimes loosening them, as Jimmy Carter did, but um, legislatively by statute being tightened. And Cuba moves very quickly into a very, very tough economic environment. Let's pivot a little bit to talk about what was going on in Cuba during these decades, specifically Fidel Castro as a leader. What was he like? What was happening to the people of Cuba? Well, you know, a revolution is a very, very polarizing and destructive event. It's also an event that rewrites well, rewrites history, but rewrites the social contract in Cuba, and that's what was happening. So on the one hand, you had thousands and thousands of Cubans who found the revolution far too radical, far too communist, far too damaging to their economic interests, some of whom wind up in jail because of political acts against the revolution, some of whom wind up in in labor camps because they're homosexual or otherwise anathema to the revolution. It's a very tumultuous time in the early 1960s, and you have waves of people who leave in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. At home, however, for those who stay, and we see this even today still, the Cuban Revolution becomes a huge national organizing principle, and the Cuban state, with Soviet help, begins to deliver health and education to Cubans who had never had either, really, or had very little access to it. And so the social aspects of the revolution get Fidel a lot of popularity, and you see very, very high literacy rates, very, very excellent health indicators develop, and you see also Cuba kind of emerge culturally and internationally on the on the global stage. And so Cuba really goes through major, major changes, even as this radicalization continues to alienate some Cubans and push them to leave. Can you talk a little bit about now that his brother, Raul Castro, is in power, how, if at all, the leadership in the country has changed? Well, you know, it's maybe counterintuitive to your listeners to hear that somebody named Castro would have such a different approach from that of his brother Fidel, but what Raul Castro has done since he stepped into power in 2008, I mean, Cuba has gone through a reform process. It is not a radical reform process. Cuba is not a multi-party democracy. It's not a capitalist economy, 
but it has gradually become a much more open society. Phones and Internet are increasingly available, so you see Cuban young people who are very active on social media able to express themselves far more openly and critically, really, than ever before since I've been watching Cuba in the last 30 years. You see the emergence of a private sector, small businesses that allow Cubans to employ themselves, employ one another, operate autonomously and independently from the state. We've seen this thawing, essentially, of U.S.-Cuba relations over the past few years, largely in part to efforts by from President Obama. How much of those efforts were as a result of changes that Raul Castro had put in place, some of these things that you're talking about? Or how, how much of those changes have come about because of President Obama's opening of the relationship between the two countries? I would, that's a very good question. And if I were somebody that had worked in the Obama administration, I might want to take full credit for the changes <laughs> that I just described. But, you know, it was a very sort of serendipitous alignment of stars in the sense that Raul Castro and Barack Obama turned out to be very good partners. They would never use that word, but partners for one another in the sense that I think Raul Castro's strategy for his tenure in office was to be able to lead an opening internally because he knew that the kind of high-octane national security state always at battle and in an adversarial relationship with Washington wasn't going to be sustainable. And he needed a partner in Washington who happened to come along in the form of Barack Obama who recognized first of all, politically, that this notion that you can't change policy because the Cuban-American population will punish you was wrong. Heading into President Trump's speech, how would you assess the U.S.-Cuba relationship stands before before this speech? Well, the relationship is just light years better than it's been, not just since 1959, but probably ever. Also, by the way, and we didn't talk about this, really helped Americans standing in Latin America. For many, many years, governments of the left, right, and center, some of Washington's closest allies, Colombia, for example, have pushed and pushed on Washington to improve the relationship with Cuba because Cuba is such a political symbol of American imperialism in Latin America. So the standing for the United States in Latin America has vastly improved as a result of the bilateral opening. So that's how we find ourselves in our current relationship with Cuba. But how can a president make policy changes if he wants to? What does that process look like? Mark Fierstein served in the Obama administration as special assistant to the president, and he helped negotiate the December 2014 opening with Cuba. Here's a view into that process from Mark. So I spent the last 21 months of the administration in the White House and had an opportunity to build on the very good work that my predecessor had done, Ricardo Zuniga, along with Ben Rhodes, in their case, the very secret negotiations to open up a channel with the Cubans, which ultimately led to the establishment of diplomatic relations. We had an opportunity to follow up on that and reach a whole series of deals uh, with the Cubans. So the U.S. thaw with Cuba began under the Obama administration, as we just said. What would you say was the first step toward that thaw? Well, it was really, I think you need to go back to the campaign in 2008. 
and the president had talked about a desire to revise our policy uh, toward Cuba because he had concluded that you know decades of trying to isolate the island was not effective. So we started very early on with some openings, uh, making it easier for Cuban Americans to travel there, to send remittances to their family. Then in 2013, opening up that secret channel to the Cubans. And again, that led uh, to a whole series of measures, including opening up embassies in our respective countries uh, by the end of the administration, ending the wet foot, dry foot policy. We also enabled businesses to do commercial deals uh, in Cuba, made it easier for Americans uh, to travel there. So a whole range of things uh, that we did over time. There are different approaches that a president can take, from my understanding, to actually implement change like this. Some of it is executive orders. Some of it is signing agreements with the other country. And some of it, you know, can ultimately be legislative action. Obviously, that's not just the president at that point. So how did most of these come about, most of these changes? Well, in the case of the embargo against Cuba, and that's both an economic embargo, a trade embargo, that's codified into law. Uh, and that's been true since the Clinton administrations. Only Congress can lift uh, the embargo. So within the context of the embargo, there is room for a president uh, to maneuver. And we basically went as far as we thought we could, according to the lawyers at DOJ and in the White House. And that said, uh, because we did this by executive order, and it's really what we're talking about here, are regulatory changes on the part of the Treasury Department. So really, they were, that was at the heart of our policy, where regulatory changes on the part of Treasury and Commerce and now to the peers that President Trump will reverse at least some of those uh, regulatory moves. Yeah. So you mentioned specifically that we set up em- we set an embassy up in Cuba. Cuba set one up here. Did that was that done by executive order? No, that was of course that was that was negotiated with the Cubans. So after the announcement, a very dramatic announcement by President Obama and President Raul Castro uh, in December of fourteen. Uh, with regard to the intention to change our relations uh, between the two countries. Then there was a follow-up negotiation between the State Department and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in Cuba, and that ultimately allowed for the opening of embassies in, in our respective countries. So if President Trump, say, wanted to undo that situation, if he wanted to get rid of those embassies, if he wanted to kind of limit the relationship, in the diplomatic relationship, can he do that? He could certainly close our embassy, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's an understanding now that having an embassy is not a gift to a foreign country. It advances our interest uh, to have our diplomats uh, engaging uh, with foreign officials and representing Americans uh, in, in in any country. How far was Obama able to go when it came to Cuba? Were there things that you wanted to accomplish that the administration was not able to? It's a great question. I mean, look, we would have loved to have seen the embargo lifted, but that requires a congressional vote. Uh, we believe, and it appears, if, as if there is majority support uh, within the House and within the Senate to lift the embargo. Uh, so if there were a vote tomorrow, the embargo would be lifted. Uh, that said, the Republican leadership is not about to permit uh, a vote, unfortunately. Uh, but you did see uh, just a couple weeks ago, a week ago, uh, senators co-sponsoring a bill to lift all travel restrictions uh, on Cuba, uh, basically to allow any American to, to go to Cuba for any reason. Right. So y- you mentioned the Republicans here. So so some Republicans, namely Jeb Bush during the 2016 campaign and Marco Rubio, they've slammed the move to end the embargo with Cuba to kind of normalize our relations with them. What is their argument? I think the argument that a lot of people have made over the years with regard to trying to clamp down on Cuba and restrict our engagement with them is that we're trying to deny resources to the government, trying to deny resources to the military, and the idea being that ultimately that would force the, the Cubans to change their political system and, and open up. The fact is, you know, we had that policy in place for five decades and it didn't work. 
You know, we didn't promote reform on the island. We isolated ourselves. We would, on an annual basis, lose a vote in Congress, 190 to 3. And we'd have Israel vote, for, vote with us, occasionally the Marshall Islands and Palau. That wasn't a very, very favorable <laughs> diplomatic position to be in. And meanwhile, the Cuban people, you know, continued to suffer. The thing that's, I think it's important to keep in mind is that the rest of the world did not join us in this policy. We were the only country trying to isolate Cuba. You know, sanctions can't be successful if you're the only one applying those sanctions. One thing about Cuba, especially right now and under President Obama, we have a ton of foreign policy challenges around the world, uh, very pressing things. And President Obama dedicated a lot of time and resources to rebuilding this relationship with Cuba. Now Trump is dedicating supposedly quite a bit of time and resources to potentially undoing what has gone on. How important is Cuba in all of this? Are we spending too much federal energy on this? Uh, look, that's a, a terrific question. In fact, Cuba was a, a priority for President Obama. In fact, it's actually not a priority for President Trump. I don't think he cares much about Cuba. Um, I don't think that folks in the NSC, like John McMaster or others, are spending that much time on it. And that's fine. It's understandable. We should have a normal relationship with Cuba. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be such a high priority. Cuba is not a threat to us uh, now. But as a result, it's become an easy thing to trade away. And there is a sense in the White House that Trump has made certain pledges to Senator Rubio, to Congressman Diaz-Balart. And what has happened now is that the policy process has basically been hijacked <laughs> uh, by negotiations between uh, certain members of Congress and the NSC. So just to kind of summarize here, I know we, we spoke a little bit about how far we think the president might go um, on Friday in his announcement about the U.S.-Cuba relations. But... How far can he go? You know, if, if Donald Trump just wanted to completely undo everything Obama had done, how far can he go? Uh, he could undo all of it. But I think, you know, we talked a lot during our administration about making the policy irreversible. And I think in many ways, many ways we did. And I think people are, are appreciating that a lot of the steps that we took, even the opponents uh, at the time, are appreciating the, the value of them. For example, as I noted, you know, having an embassy serves the United States uh, interest. So it doesn't make sense to, to close an embassy. Allowing American companies like Airbnb to operate in Cuba obviously is good for you know, U.S. business and for U.S. jobs. Allowing you know, Americans to travel uh, to Cuba, again, has been good for American business. You know, we now have airlines uh, tra you know, traveling directly to Havana. But I think most important, uh, this policy has been beneficial to the Cuban people. When an American travels to Cuba, they're spending money uh, in private restaurants. They're spending money on private entrepreneurs and, and the other businesses that they're running. And it's clear that has had an impact. During the campaign, Trump called, and, and we touched on this before, but Trump called the Obama administration's negotiations with Cuba, quote, a very weak argument. He even tweeted in November, this is the language of his tweet, if Cuba is unwilling to make a better deal for the Cuban people, the Cuban-American people, and the U.S. as a whole, I will terminate the deal. My question is, and again, we touched on this a little bit, but did this position help him win? And does it help him politically now? I don't think it had much bearing on the election one way or another. Whether it would have a positive effect now, um, again, I think that, that you have to judge what the saliency of the Cuba issue is right now. Um, again, there are lots of people, including Republicans in lots of states, who say, you know, enough of this. We're business people. You, you say you're for business people. We want to make money. Don't close this down. This is a way for us to make money and promote jobs in this country. You know, there are people, as we've said before, in the Cuban-American community who 
will say, no, Trump promised we don't want to move forward with the opening to Cuba. But there are many others who say, yes, we do. We don't want to go backwards. And so I think it's difficult to tell right now, but I think that overall, the balance in the business community and public opinion is toward continuing the opening. And I think that's what the administration has to juggle. Yeah. Now, one thing that's been really striking to me is that Trump has now traveled to several countries and and he's failed to condemn human rights violations in, in Saudi Arabia. He doesn't do so in the Philippines. But it seems that he's been receptive to some arguments about human rights and implementing democracy in Cuba. Why here and not elsewhere? I think it's all about American politics. And it's about that juggling and that seeking political advantage here that we, we talked about earlier. I think that uh, certainly there are human rights, big human rights problems in Cuba. But I think that uh, it's politically expedient to criticize human rights in Cuba, which certainly deserve criticism. But as you say, if you compare it to what the administration has done with other countries that have similar, if not worse, problems, there's really no comparison. I think Trump in his speech will concentrate a lot on human rights problems in Cuba. Which is unusual based on his other speeches. Yeah, I mean, he just was in Saudi Arabia and uh, where you have his own government has said uh, in their human rights reports that are issued by the State Department every year that there are real problems there. You don't have free elections. You don't have political expression. uh, You don't have free media. You have pretty draconian punishments for what we would consider to be civil liberties and and minor crimes. And so clearly the administration sees a political advantage to having that posture. Um, When you ask the administration about that, they say, well, we speak privately to people. We don't believe in publicly shaming people. But clearly that's what they do believe vis-a-vis Cuba because there's no real cost to doing it with Cuba unless it's a domestic political cost. And that's what remains to be seen. So you've reported extensively on Cuba, and and you've spent some time there. How do you expect Cubans to react to a big policy change from Trump? I think that many Cubans uh, who have have taken advantage of the opening with much more uh, access to the internet, to social media, to developing private businesses, to um, not really having more free expression, but really being more in touch with the world, being able to travel more to leave Cuba uh, as long as they, they come back. And so I think that by and large, people would be very disappointed with that. The question is, how is the government going to react? Are they going to sort of really try to analyze the reality beneath the rhetoric uh, of what's likely to be a pretty rhetorically bombastic speech and see what actually is going to change? And uh, I think it may be less than it sounds like. And the question is whether the government sees it to its advantage to um, kind of keep its mouth shut. So this is the final question to you. And as we do on this show, we ask the big can he do that question. And in this case, it's it's can Trump just roll back whichever pieces of Obama's Cuba policy he wants to? And, and is that a good idea? By and large, he can. Uh, because Virtually all of these changes were made by executive order by President Obama. The U.S. embargo against Cuba still exists. Attempts in Congress, uh, there have been many bills introduced to lift it uh, that have not. It's not that they haven't been successful. It's that the Republican-led Congress has not allowed action on them. Many people think that if they did, 
they would go through, but they haven't. They haven't been through committees. They haven't been brought to the floor, and so um, in the absence of lifting the embargo and lifting the travel restrictions, what you have is a series of executive actions by one ex- executive that the next executive, as we've seen in other matters, can pretty easily roll back. Yeah. Karen, thank you so much for being here. You guys can follow Karen DeYoung on Twitter at... Uh, KDYoung1. <laughs> or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, as always, at Allison Mikes. You guys know the drill. As always, if you liked this, review it wherever you review your podcasts, wherever you're listening, and send us a message. You can send us a message wherever you like to send messages. So carrier pigeon, home video, whatever you guys want, we are here for you. Send us your ideas. We're listening and we're going to bring you more episodes. Thanks so much. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the extremely hardworking, charming, and lovely Carol Alderman. With design help from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan's interviews reveal the people behind today's biggest news. Or try Presidential where host Lillian Cunningham spent a year exploring the character and legacy of each of the American presidents. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.